0: Hello and welcome to Sync Music Matters, a podcast that explores the beautiful relationship between music and the moving image. My name is Jim Holstrup and I'm your host on this journey, as each week I chew the fat with industry professionals who, on a daily basis, work with music for visuals. Now you might immediately assume that I'm talking about composers, but I'm also talking about editors, music supervisors, directors and anyone else who's involved with the synchronous process of pairing audio and visuals. Today I'm talking to music producer and creative director Jules Bromley. So the regulars amongst you will have noticed that I've changed the title music. Well, that's because Jules is the creative director of UK-based trailer music label Evolving Sound, and I thought it fitting to have a particularly bombastic piece of trailer music as the opening gambit. Uh, The track is called Legends Don't Die, was written and produced by me, and is courtesy of the lovely people at AudioSocket ASX. So, in episode 3 of Sync Music Matters, I was chatting to Emma Middleton, who is a trailer music supervisor. Now, evolving sound is the kind of trailer music label that someone like Emma might go to when looking for the perfect piece of music for a theatrical trailer. And by trailer music, we mean the music that's featured in the trailers for movies and TV series releases that we see on TV or online or in the cinema. As creative director, Jules is the visionary that exec produces custom work with trailer houses and the writing of albums of trailer music. Essentially, he chooses the creative direction, writes the briefs, and brings together the composers and project manages the process from conception to completion. We go under the skin of Jurassic Park Dominion, which was a recent custom trailer job involving Evolving Sound. That's easy for you to say. Uh, I asked Jules to break down the process of how trailers come into being, from a studio starting to shoot a movie to the final trailer that hits the screens on the run-up to a movie being released, and, of course, where the music fits into that process. Um, Jules also has a fascinating backstory as someone who studied a land economy and foreign languages at Cambridge University before quitting in his late 20s to pursue a career in music. Um, As always, all the music that we discuss in the show is linked to in the show notes. Uh, If you are that way inclined, I would be hugely grateful if you could pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review and a rating. It just helps the podcast reach as many people as possible. So sit back, relax, grab yourself a cup of tea and a Jaffa cake and enjoy the chat with Jules Bromley. And... As an addendum to that, we do actually touch on the age-old conundrum which philosophers have wrestled with for millennia as to whether or not a Jaffa Cake is technically a cake or a biscuit. Jules is the creative director at UK trailer music label Evolving Sound. Evolving Sound's mission is to deliver unparalleled dramatic music which is designed specifically for theatrical promotion. Their tracks are custom-built to enrich, enhance, illuminate and contextualise awesome visual content. Some of their recent syncs include Jurassic World, Dominion, 1917, Last Night in Soho and Don't Breathe 2. Jules's career actually began in dance music production and remixing, with a host of remix credits for the likes of Texas, Brand Van 3000 and David Arnold. He spent many years writing production music and has written for 25 albums on the Universal Production Music Catalogue. Jules Bromley, thanks very much for joining me. Hey Jim, you you actually counted how many albums I've written for? That's amazing. <laughs> well, I, I, I'd i love to say yes, but actually, I just did some digging, and actually, that was actually on the the Universal, the UniPPM website. Oh right, okay, yeah, golly, um, and a, a, a picture of you because I, I had to be, initially I was like, is that Jules? Because it was a that oh, was quite man. a long time yeah, ago. Yeah, sorry, it, I'm all grey now. Yeah, barely
1: recognisable.
0: <laughs> um, but um, yeah, thanks very much for for for, for joining. So I mean. The, the the starting point for this podcast as always is if you were to cast your mind back to a kind of young um 5 to 10 year old uh, Jules Bromley gallivanting round the uh, the streets of Cheshire um and someone had asked you what would you what you would like to be when you grow up what would have been your response
1: god didn't everybody want to be a footballer when they were 5 to 10 years old I, i'm pretty sure i did i was i was shit at football as well so um who would you have been? Oh God, no! I would have played for Man City. They they were okay. still are my team, I suppose. Um,
0: right.
1: Yeah, and then yeah, music kind of really started in the teens for me. Um, mm. And then I think there was probably a brief dalliance with wanting to be an actor. So yeah, right. basically just desperately clamouring for attention and celebrity, you know. <laughs>
0: yeah well as a footballer certainly today they seem to be pretty powerful well i suppose actors as well they're probably amongst the most powerful uh, celebrities
1: yeah yeah i I don't know i've had a about actors i don't think they're as influential as we think they are i think they are you know they're enormously talented but basically you know tools within a very manipulative industry um i feel sorry for them sometimes i think they get you know they get a they get a bad rap. Uh, yeah, and at the sure. end of the day, they're contracted to say and do a lot of stuff that they probably don't want to say and do. And they have to work yeah. bloody hard. So, um, yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, thank God there's Ricky Gervais. So who's that? Available <laughs> take to take keep, keep Yeah. yeah. At the Golden Globes. Yeah. Um, so what was that initial dalliance with music? Um, after wanting to be a, uh, a footballer?
1: Oh God, I, I suppose from, so, I, I mean, I had a musical family. My, um, my grandmother on one side was an opera singer. Uh, my other grandmother was a, a music teacher, a piano teacher, and and singer. Had studied at the Royal Northern College. Um, and my dad played jazz trumpet. So we, you know, there was a we had a musical family. But I I didn't learn music. I mean, I learned to play the piano when I was a kid um, and was in bands from sort of early teens. And that's kind of really where it it, it got its hooks into me. But I didn't have any formal training. I didn't have, I didn't you know acquire through my um, academic learning period much in the way of skills. So I came out the other end of university, um, and I didn't study music. Um, I studied something completely unrelated, went into a completely unrelated job until I was probably I think I packed in my day job when I was 27, 28 um Mm. having you know always played in bands always been doing remixes for friends building studios and beta testing whatever i could get my hands on Mm. um
0: may I ask what that unrelated degree was
1: yeah it was um it was land economy and uh foreign languages yeah modern languages at at cambridge uh, a long long, long long time ago
0: yeah and which languages german and spanish
1: Ah, yeah, so good. yeah't let, let's not go there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so um, so I, uh, yeah, so I worked I worked in London and was trying to find a pathway into music, and it probably took me sort of six or seven years until late twenties. I packed in the day job, uh, got a job at a recording studio in West London, which I don't think is there anymore, called Eden Studios just as an assistant i think i i basically figured out that i I'd, I'd saved up enough money to survive for a year i wasn't getting paid uh and i just needed as, as a lot of people do i think they you just need that springboard you just need a sort of you know a, a, an exit from whatever the 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 mundane day job is that you're not happy with to do something that you know you really feel is your is your passion and i was very lucky it worked out for me um worked bloody hard i have to say So, yeah, worked at the studio as an assistant for probably six months and then set up a a dance record label in London called Planet Nice Records with a friend Um, and then got into remixing off the back of that, um, which, again, was just a a stroke of good fortune. We'd done a a dance release for a record label in South London called Resolution and that got picked up by Echo. Echo, was it called? Echoes? It was a a music magazine or paper that was around in the 90s. The guy who was the music reviewer there was a friend of Ashley Heath, who was the editor at The Face, and he was also Charlene Spiteri's boyfriend, loved the track, rang me up, asked if I'd do a remix for one of Texas's singles, Black Eyed Boy, I think it was, and that sort of led me into remixing and helped me sort of keep a, a roof over my head. And, uh, yeah, then uh, as with most people in music, I had various fingers in various pies for lots of years, had a record deal with V2 records with a band called Columbo, uh, did a great music video with Lionel Blair, God rest his soul. Um,
0: can we see that? Yeah, it's still, it's still up on YouTube Uh, actually, believe it or not. If you Google
1: Columbo and Lionel Blair, I'm sure it'll emerge from the ether. uh,
0: Be sure to put a link in the uh, the show notes. Please don't. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
1: So yeah, and like like you, I got into sync music um, as a sort of means of just stabilising what is otherwise a highly volatile um, career, and just getting a bit of regular income, I guess. Um, And and was a jobbing composer for twenty years, doing TV commercials, some short films. Lots of production music, um, some documentary work, whatever came along, basically. Some commission, some production.
0: Was there a particular catalyst that, you know, in your late 20s led you to? Because I I could very much relate to that story because I was the same. I had a day job and it was in, it was kind of, I I think it was about 30 at the time when I decided to chance it. Had enough money to save up to to pay the bills for a year with a view to, you know, worst thing that happens is I make a, have a year making music and then have to go back to what i did but fortunately didn't have to was there a particular catalyst that led you to go right now's the moment and gave you the courage to to make that decision
1: that's a really good question um i think the misery basically (laughs) of a job i hated eventually reaching saturation point (laughs) Mm. um yeah and then just thinking actually i suppose I realized there didn't need to be a sort of seamless transition and there was probably never going to be a seamless transition from a, you know, a a well-paid professional career in one field, um, just, you know, smoothly slip, slip streaming into something equally, um, stable in the music world that was never going to happen. And that sort of realization gradually dawned. And I, I think when I got the, um, assistant, um, at Eden Studios job I thought well that's probably as good as it gets okay so there's no money but at least there's 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 a purpose there's a reason to get up in the morning um there's a studio to go to there's stuff to learn there's people to meet um and it was great you know and it 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 starts you on the path and it was terrifying um but you know not having that income stream is a bit terrifying and I didn't know I I thought well the worst that can happen is I have to go back and do what I was doing before Um, so yeah but it it, you know I just got lucky it worked out and um, there were a few kind of hairy years and then things kind of settled down and you think actually this is probably going to be okay having said that you know it's now 25 years later I still have days when I you know I wake up and think shit you know evolving Sound still going to be here in six months it's a tough industry you know and it's not getting any easier and it's tough for composers and it's tough for people who run businesses like this and you know things are changing the business model surrounding production music has changed dramatically in the last 20 years um which is one of the the reasons why i kind of wanted to get away from mainstream production music just because it seemed to be it seemed to be evolving into a bit of a race to the bottom in that it, there was one business model after another which seemed to want to charge less and less money for people to use you know really well crafted music and i think that's a uh, That's a great shame, and I think that's a real problem for the industry. Um, Whereas trailers, um, because of the nature of the assets they're promoting, um, they have budget. And if it's the right piece of music, they'll pay good money for it, and they don't, you know, it's not about... $50 $50 a month subscription and getting as much money as you can for nothing. It's about finding the right cue and making sure it's all about quality and production values and so on and so forth. Customization and getting things absolutely spot on. Perfect live music orchestras, you know, it's just, it's just a different kettle of fish. Um, and to me that just that, that resonates that it's an industry that values music still. Um, it's an industry that, you know, doesn't try and stiff people. Um, okay look you get clients who are tough and there's always haggling and negotiating when when we do a sync but um yeah the the whole ethos is just very different
0: that was one of the reasons i was very keen to to talk to you because i think that commitment to quality and commitment to the to the music um is apparent in in your catalogue and in in evolving sounds ethos and uh, yeah i think I, i i agree there's there's a whole new world of sort of micro-licensing now and and sort of production music sort of evolving into that. And I think I, I too, am a sort of purist and believe that, you know, you're only, as, as a composer... It's funny, there's a, I read an article this week from Alan Shearer and he was talking about when he was back playing football there was a saying that you're only as good as your last game and his ethos was you're only as good as your next game and I, I kind of really feel that with music as well. Um, you, you know, that, that drive to, to to improve and to get better comes from looking to the next one rather than sort of sitting on your laurels and um, so that I think that really kind of resonates with me. You mentioned you sort of spent 20 years as a, a jobbing composer. Was it was it the change in the music industry and the change in production music was the, which was the catalyst for you to then go okay well from composer to now I'm going to be the person you know exec producing music and bringing in the composers and sort of running a business it was partly that
1: yeah that was partly that it was there were definitely there were certain key moments i remember one of the big publishers changing the splits that they were offering to composers and i just thought You know, it had always been 50-50, and all of a sudden it wasn't 50-50 anymore. And that, I think, marked a real turning point. Um, I I was also, um, you know, Evolving Sound was very much a a sort of a creative direction rather than a business idea. I was just crazy about trailer music. Um, I'd had some trailer placements with other labels, um, and I was just excited about exploring that whole sort of trailer universe, and this was primarily originally intended as a vehicle to do that um, you know i just love the the drama the production values um, a lot of parallels with dance music in terms of obsession with production val- uh, production values um pacing timing the drops the builds um you know the the fixation with the latest cutting edge sounds the way you know dance music and trailer music the, the the signature sounds are always evolving and changing. I love all of that. You know, that, that really excited me. So it um you know, it started off and I was I wrote I think on our first three albums and then I realized within a few months that there was just no way I could continue writing as well as do a decent job of of, of running Evolving Sound as a as a dedicated music label. So I just basically made a commitment to be creative director, stop composing. And also there was just, uh, you know, I was aware there was such awesome talent out there. Um, I didn't need to write, you know, there were great composers I wanted to work with. Um, and so that kind of made the decision that much easier. You know, I started working with a few composers and I thought, look, this this stuff is better than I'm writing. Um, and I'm not being sort of falsely humble there. It really was. It was just really, 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 really good stuff. Um, so, yeah, so that's kind of how it, how it evolved, I mean, and I have to say, I was totally clueless about the trailer industry when we started out, and the first couple of years were really tough and a huge learning experience. But I was lucky enough to get a bit of help here and there, have great supportive clients um, and you know it started slowly, you get a little placement here, a bit of sound design, and then gradually i don 't know how it works the, the the brand starts to get recognized, word gets around, things get picked up. Um, and yeah, touch wood. And I say, as I say, I wake up every morning and <laughs> think, <you God. laughs> uh, are we still going to be here in six months? But yeah, it's been, it's been, it's been a roller coaster, but it's, it's been great.
0: Yeah. I suppose that's symptomatic of any, you know, if it's your company or even, you know, myself as a freelancer, it's not quite like when you're employed and you just know you're going to get paid every month. It's sort of your... You're directly responsible for making sure that things do continue to grow and and move forward. Yeah, you have to, you have to, you have to,
1: you know, stay focused on the stuff you you have control over, and and that primarily is just creating great music. So that obviously is the core of 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 what I spend ninety percent of my days doing. Um, But at the same time, you have to make sure that the right people are hearing that music as well, and you have to be responsive to um, a totally different industry culture. Um, to what I was used to as a composer, where a lot of the creative direction basically came from you, you know you had longer time scales if you wanted to tr- write a track in a particular style, even if it was for a you know for a given brief, there was a lot of flexibility there um, when you're when you 're working with studios, trailer houses who have been uh, given the responsibility to market these incredibly valuable ips the whole business model just changes and their expectations of, of you as a company, of your composers, of the quality of the productions you deliver is, is is dramatically different. You have to, you know, and it's just that's been the one of the big sort of um, takeaways for me is... We are here to serve a very a highly professional, very dynamic, high pressure industry to solve their music problems, their sound design problems for them. And that means, you know, if, if they ask for something and they need it in two hours, they're not doing that just to be awkward, although we sometimes might suspect they are. It's because genuinely somebody higher up the chain and the marketing department at the studio has hit a hitch a bump in the road or somebody some marketing exec has said this isn't working we quickly need to change direction and and, you know they come to us because they they need us to to help them so you know and that's that's very much our ethos now is that we you know we are here only to to sort of serve the trailer houses and the studios and the streamers obviously to a to a large extent now um and make make their lives as easy as possible
0: yeah absolutely well we'll we'll dig into um, sort of a couple of recent projects that you've been on but i think if for anyone listening who doesn't quite know how you know the chain of events the pyramid if you will um of events when it comes to trailer music and how trailers get made from you know from the inception of okay studios making a movie can you just talk us through step by step that that pyramid and then that will hopefully give people an idea then we'll we'll dive into um,
1: yeah, I mean, obviously, I see it. You know, really, that uh, and the the music suppliers are kind of at the bottom of the pyramid. Um, in that there is, you know, there is a, a Jurassic World or a Marvel movie or whatever it is. Um, there is a marketing team at the studio who is charged with creating a whole series of assets that are going to be used to market um, that production. They go out often these days to multiple specialists. Uh, advertising agencies that we call trailer houses. Those guys are specialists in creating theatrical trailers. Some of them do key art as well. Um, and they then come out to us, usually fairly on in the process, uh, not just to us. Obviously, there's a whole world of trailer music out there. And sometimes they don't need trailer music. Sometimes they'll use commercial music. Sometimes they'll use score. Sometimes they will get tracks written from scratch. Um, but music is is certainly sort of factored into the creative process very, very early on. Um, I think if you, you, you've probably spoken to a few editors, the ones I speak to will always tell you that it's pretty much the first thing they do. They'll watch the movie or they'll watch a rough cut or whatever uh, footage they've been given access to the dailies, etc., And then they'll start thinking about music. And once they find that cue or that song or that bed or whatever it is that they feel best, captures their creative vision for the, for the trailer, they will start cutting. Um, now obviously it may take a hundred different twists and turns down the line um, and I know that trailers often don't finish till they're literally in their V100 and something or others. You know, I'm used to signing off tracks at V456. Trailers just go to and fro. They take months and months. They get shelved. They come back into life again. Um, things change direction. The showrunners or the director gets involved and decides they want to, you know, ha- have an involvement and change the way things are, are being run. So, It's, um, yeah, it's a long drawn out process. Sometimes, occasionally they will find the perfect track and they will need to do very little with it and they will just cut with that track. And sometimes they'll use multiple tracks. Um, They say if you haven't got at least 100 tracks on your cue sheet as an editor, you're not trying hard enough. So, you know, these are very, very, very complex sound beds, lots of music, lots of sound design. Um, some existing commercial tracks, some, you know, old tracks, some classical music, whatever it may be stems from different tracks led together. You know, the editors, as you alluded to earlier, are real wizards with working with audio as much almost as working with video. Um, so yeah, sometimes they'll come back to us if a track is close but isn't quite sort of pushing all the buttons and they'll ask us to customise it. Um, And that might mean we have to work a theme into an existing cue. It might just mean that we have to pull some parts out, add some extra parts in, more hits, more sound design, more intensity, bigger drums, whatever it is, um, until it's absolutely right. And that's typically how it works. And then usually it disappears, we hear nothing, Sometimes it disappears because something else has been picked in its place. Um, If we're lucky, we then get a quote request from the studio saying, how much is it going to cost? We lick our finger, stick it in the air, come up with a number. And again, if we're lucky, it lands, you know, weeks or months later. But it's, um, yeah, it's a fairly complex process.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's great. I think that sort of um, summarizes it quite nicely and probably segues nicely into um, going under the skin. Under the skin the albums uh, of music that you do um there's a couple um i can't remember is it dominus yeah
1: dominus and fortis
0: dominus and fortis which are a couple of recent uh, releases from evolving sound um which and obviously you've been out to vienna as well to um to score those let's take one of those for example and just i'm really interested in in sort of your approach so you presumably sort of because I, I know, I know, you know, reading the biog about evolving sound, you're very much looking to sort of the future, and this sort of like okay, trying to anticipate future needs. What um, are are people going to want? What are, almost you know, what what can we, what movement can we start to trailblaze or sort of provide something that other people aren't providing? What's your starting point with the sort of like the concept of an album in terms of envisaging it, and then I suppose walk us through sort of that uh, from the inception to um, sort of finalizing it
1: um it depends a little bit i mean you you have to have regard some regard to what productions are in the pipeline so with fortis and dominus for example we knew because of the pandemic there was a backlog of um blockbuster movies coming out this year um there was also lots of very high quality streaming content um that had a sort of more Epic feel to it, The Lord of the Rings, House of the Dragon, um, The Witcher, stuff like that. So those are the kind of projects that these albums were were aimed at. Fortis being slightly more dark fantasy, Dominus being a little bit more heroic action, but very much orchestral. Um, and the, the thinking really w- with those specific albums, and it changes all the time, obviously, was um, I got a sense that in some respects the industry was starting to become a little bit nostalgic about slightly older style orchestral trailer music we'd done the kind of great big gnarly synthy signature sounds the big sirens and so on not that they'd gone out of fashion just that they you know would we used a lot last year the year before um and so let's do a slightly more purist orchestral project uh one aimed at fancy one aimed at more sort of heroic action um, so that's, you know, with with albums like that, you don't really have to think too much beyond that concept, um, except that for that style, I feel that whenever you have the budget and the opportunity, you should always record musicians live. It just sounds so much better. Um, and we did um, have the opportunity, unfortunately, the budget. So we went to Synchron Stage where Hans Zimmer and Lorne Balfe and the Gregson Williams and so on and so forth record a lot of their film scores. And it's just an amazing facility. Uh, Great, great players. Um, We've recorded, I think, five or six orchestral albums before that in in Budapest, which is also fantastic. Great players, good studio um, and lovely people. And this was just, you know, dare I say it, just a slight notch above. Um, And that's not to diminish the quality of the players in, in Hungary at all. It's just that they're more the facility than anything else was just custom designed a lot of money had gone into it um and so yeah so we spent a few days over there i mean it's very expensive obviously recording live orchestra so you're constantly on a on a deadline you're constantly you know looking at the stopwatch trying to get through as many cues as you can in a session um separate strings and brass session that's how we typically work just so that we don't have the brass drowning out the strings when we're we come to mix um
0: and do you get, when uh, when you sort of get in there and, you know, start, you know, recording the first cue and the orchestra strikes up, do you... I get goosebumps.
1: I get goosebumps every single time. I mean, it's just, it's just amazing. And obviously there's a lot of preparation goes into it so that the composers, some of them are classically trained and can just rattle off a, you know, full orchestral score, no problem. Others aren't. Um, so we had... Uh, an orchestrator involved who prepared all the scores and it just makes life so much easier if you've had you know somebody who really knows what they're doing go through all the scores go back to the composer if necessary and check do you really want pizzicato here or do you want spiccato or you know just verify that the composer's vision is correctly articulated in in what's been written down Um, and we liaise with the studio and the conductor um, we sometimes in, in, in the past have even sent scores over to musicians to practice before before the sessions normally though all these guys are so professional first first take is pretty amazing second take they've basically nailed it occasionally on a really tricky passage you might need to go to a third take um, and yeah and that's what you want obviously because the quicker they nail it uh, the better the score is, the more material you get through, um, and you know the, the 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 more you feel you've achieved from from the whole process. So it was great. Um, and are you having the orchestra record to click? Yes, every every yeah, time. So that
0: you can then you can drop in in different takes. And yeah,
1: it doesn't mean you can't have tempo changes, um, but when we when we prov- we provide basically a click track, uh, a sort of master session, if you like, pro tool session for every every cue that we're going to record, and that will have the click in it. Um, it might even have some of the other parts, so some of the uh, percussion we might include in there, so that the orchestra has a sort of loose framework for the, for the rest of the cue. You know, if you've got a vocal or, or some choral parts or whatever that you're not recording live, you might include those. Um, so you just give them as much context as you, as you possibly can for their performance.
0: When you're not recording an orchestra, are you multi-tracking? Because you said you always like to get real strings um, or real elements in there uh, are you multi-tracking sort of violins and and things and, yeah. and things like so
1: that? um i mean we have done some smaller section recordings um for sort of neoclassical projects and more uh, more of a chamber sound um and we've done sort of string quartets as well um either live or increasingly I have to say we're using two or three of our favorite string players and we're recording parts separately just because they know our workflow, they're amazing players um, and in fact we're working on an album at the moment called Heliocentric which is kind of art house indie content and there's a lot of live strings in there. Uh, but the easiest thing is to kind of get the, the bones of the cue together and then decide What we should record live, if we should add some extra live parts and send it off to the string players we use and they just they turn it around within a couple of days. If it's not quite right, we go back for another take. It just takes some of the pressure off because if you have a if you've got sort of six, seven up to, you know, 50 or 60 musicians there waiting and something isn't quite right. You can't go back. You've just got to, you know, if it's not right on the day, you're not going to get it right at all and you're just going to have to fudge it later. So if you have the option to, you know, work with somebody um, that you can send parts back to if they're not perfect, then that just takes some of the pressure off.
0: And in terms of your process, when you're when you sort of I suppose when you're planning, but also when you're listening back, are you planning an album in terms of you Obviously, you've, got, you've defined the sort of what the album's for, whether it's for sort of action cues. Um, but are you sort of then going, okay, well, across sort of uh, 10, 15, 20 tracks, um, I need several which are kind of maybe, you know, in a different time signature. I need several with this sort of feel. Are you trying to sort of get a broad spectrum which, which tick various different boxes for, or is it just sort of a feeling in terms of what composers turn in and whether it's In an good? ideal
1: world, you, you want some variety on an album, uh, and on occasion, we'll get halfway through and I will send a note out and just say, look, we're getting a lot of action drums. Um, can we perhaps go in a slightly direction with any remaining cues that are still in the pipeline? By and large, though, I I tend to like composers to to deliver what they want to deliver. I mean, obviously, that I do send out a super detailed brief. I mean, I'm horribly anal with my briefs. They go on for pages and pages, lots of references. Um, yeah. So, you know, it gives people a pretty good idea of what we want. And I tend to find if we've got 12 to 15 composers probably on average involved on an album, you're going to get a, a fairly good mix of material anyway. And once you've worked with people for a few years, as we have with most of our roster of, of writers now, you you can almost build the album when you select the composers you're going to involve because you know the kind of tracks that they like to write and that's not to say that, you know, that they don't have diverse skills. It's just that they do, you know, people tend to have a preference. They tend to have a sound. Um, and, you know, that's, that's good in many ways. It means that we can, we can shape, um, you know, the, the guys that we involve and the, the, the work they're likely to, to, to output into something that has a sort of cohesive, meaningful feel as an album. Well. absolutely and also you know we yeah. go we rarely sign off on a v1 as any composer that works with me will tell you <laughs> i'm sure i'm sure they must hate me but um what that means is you know things do change between v1 and v5 when we finally say yeah that's perfect um so if it is a bit you know not quite in on the right track we have that opportunity to sort of steer it slightly differently as we're going through revisions um get live musicians involved you know just take it in a slightly different direction if necessary so you know there's a there's 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 enough flexibility available to us uh, because of the time scales that we're able to work to that we can we can usually sort of you know get to a point where we're pretty happy with the mixer tracks we get
0: and it, yeah i mean it's interesting what you say about the view i i think you know the, the chances of someone turning in a v1 and just going yep that's perfect no, i, I,
1: I wish if- for it every day <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> and it, do, it does it
1: does we get close you know there are some composers who they they know so well what it is that you know well it is it is basically but you see the other thing is i don't want them to write for me you know i know that i have my personal sort of preferences and tastes and styles and so on so i constantly have to try and discard those and think no it's about the project let's think about what 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 trailer is this track going to end up on and 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 if we want to really, you know, nail it down, what do we have to do to to give it a, you know, the best possible chance of doing that? So that's that's really the motivation.
0: Well, this is a theme that keeps coming up in a in a, in a lot of episodes as well as the idea that, you know, when it, obviously as a composer, as a creative, you're creating something and then you're handing it in and you're waiting for sort of critique and, and notes. And it can be it can, you know, from an egotistical point of view, it can sometimes be quite quite difficult particularly when you've poured your heart and soul in but i think what a lot of people have sort of talked about is the idea of reframing this is actually it's a collaboration it's not just about you and that um interestingly chatting to michael price we talk about you know as a composer you're so bogged down in the sort of the nitty-gritty of it that sometimes you you don't have that perspective you're trying to maintain it but that's where actually this collaborative nature comes in and having sort of like the exec producer come in and say okay well hey this is what i'm hearing it's like oh okay well, certainly that's a valuable perspective, but also sometimes is it sort of nudges you down an avenue of uh, that you might not have found I think, I think that's, know, on, I on think your that's own.
1: exactly right. And I think, um, you know, having been a composer, I know how when you've listened to something 300 times, you do start to lose perspective. And, and I, you know, I used to cycle four bars at a time looking for the perfect snare sound or whatever it was. And by the end of the day, you just it didn't mean anything anymore. Whereas when I get a fresh track in, and this is the, you know, the joy of my role is I immediately know what's working and what's working. It's just an instinctive thing. I don't have to listen to it more than two or three times. Um, I know the notes just come out and, you know, sometimes there's very few of them. But anything that isn't right just jumps out to me because I have, I've never heard it before. So it's, you know, I'm, I'm hearing something completely fresh with no preconceptions, no expectations. Um, so that you know, that, is, that is, you're absolutely right. It's, it's very much designed to be a collaborative process. And it's a problem, I think, if composers can't get behind that notion that we're all working together, you know, we're all a team. All, all we want is to give their music the best possible chance of securing a sync. That's, you know, we're, we're all working towards the same ultimate end. Um, and there are, you're right, there are some composers who don't like taking notes. And as a rule, sadly we struggle to work with composers who don't like take it's just that's just the reality it's just like an editor saying well this is a perfect edit and if the studio doesn't like it too bad that you know it's just that that equation just doesn't work so um
0: no it, it yeah absolutely and it's i think that speaks also to the idea that um people that working relationship if someone's sort of easy to work with um, that goes that goes a long way if you you could be the best composer in the world but if it, it working with you is, is a nightmare then um, it's going to be very difficult to that's have any a, I think
1: that's the same in any industry isn't it so so much about personal relationships yeah
0: yeah definitely um, and do you just uh, do you have a little ritual? You know, when you sort of list is kind of sort of sitting down to do a listening, like a cup of tea and a custard cream, or something like that. Ready? <laughs> yeah, to...
1: exactly. Yeah, cappuccino and a jaffa cake in my case. Yeah, um... <laughs>
0: Brilliant. Well, that, that answers the, one of the later questions, which is, it's your favourite biscuit? <laughs> okay, no,
1: there you go. But then,
0: yeah. is a jaffa cake a cake or a biscuit? It, it, apparently, it's a cake. Yeah, so I'll have it to is. rethink. Yeah. And do you know? Do you know why it's a cake? No, I've no idea so theoretically a biscuit if you leave it out goes soft whereas a cake if you leave it out goes hard dries up so because a jaffa cake goes hard it's a cake. and who, who came up with that definition i wonder i i imagine some somebody with
1: somebody with too much time on their hands
0: but... <laughs> some boffin <laughs> at a university <laughs> research facility who thought this would be a good phd <laughs> um, yeah absolutely um Brilliant. Okay, well, that's, yeah, that's some sort of fascinating insight into sort of um, the production process of an album. Um, you touched on sort of earlier um, within the trailer world the kind of bespoke nature of things, and obviously Jurassic World Dominion um, is a recent one that you sort of um, had a, uh, um, a bespoke involvement in. Can you talk us through a little bit about um, through that through that process and how that came about and what, what the bespoke nature of that was?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um... Just a great project, incidentally. So so um, so lucky to be involved in that. Um, I, we had um, we had a couple of little placements on the second Jurassic World movie, which I can't remember the name of. Um, so off the back of that, I suggested to a few composers that we basically get a bundle of Jurassic Park slash World orientated cues together on spec. Um, which we do occasionally, uh, if, especially if something has a theme, an IP that's exclusive to, to that particular franchise, um, then we'll, we'll get some spec tracks together and we'll take them to who we think are going to be working on, on that campaign. Um, so, And I knew the in-house music guy, Universal Pictures have their own in-house kind of creative agency, so they have a, like a trailer house within the studio. Um, They don't do a lot of their um, campaigns. Most of them go out of house, but on some campaigns, they keep a lot of that work in-house. And so I sent probably five or six cues to him a couple of years ago. And it was literally a couple of years ago. um, In fact, probably even before the pandemic. And then of course, everything got slowed down. Filming got held up. The movie release date got pushed back and back and back. And I thought nothing will ever come of this. And then last summer... Um, we started getting asked if we could customise some tracks. Um, They were obviously just in the sort of early stages of getting the campaign together, and they were trying all sorts of different approaches. But clearly our music had gone down well, which was amazing. Um, And we did a whole bunch of stuff. Some of it was taking pop songs and working them into cues that we'd done. Some of it was taking bits of score and trying to adapt our cue to sound more score and so on and so forth and lots and lots of different approaches. And then one of them started to get a bit of traction. Um, so we worked a bit more on that. Then as these things invariably do, it went very, very quiet for a while. And then it just came back with a vengeance, I think last July-ish and... As I understand it, the trailer this was for the original IMAX preview, I think it was called, which was going to be basically the very first bit of promotional material that went out. It was a long, sort of three three and a half minute trailer that was shown. I think it was Fast and Furious Nine was coming out at the same time, so they were sort of using that to piggyback the promotion over. Um, so yeah, so we we did a lot of late nights. Um, lots of different approaches as i say the trailer i think had pretty much locked but somebody had decided to open pandora's box and start tampering with the music uh which meant that it was all hands on deck and various sort of sirens were going off at universal pictures marketing headquarters and they needed stuff done really quickly so we i think we did probably five all night sessions with the composer chris davy um and as these things invariably do though you do one thing and you'd think you were done and it would come back the next night and it would be a totally different approach you know we heavily trailerized stuff then we came back and we had to take all the trailerization out and they wanted it to sound more like score um there was one night where they needed literally 45 seconds of fresh totally new score and they needed it two hours later um and this is just, you know, that's the nature of the beast. They were great to work with. The feedback was amazing. Um, eventually it wrapped. And again, we heard nothing for a while and then got a confirmation um, not, not long after. Um, and it wasn't a huge amount of our music. There's a lot of score in there. Um, but obviously just a, an amazing project to be involved with. And um, yeah, very, very satisfying.
0: Amazing um and just pick up on something you you mentioned there as well because i think this is something <clears throat> as a composer it's always a line we're treading you know obviously the final product that we see on tv or on youtube or in the cinema is very heavy on the trailerization the impacts the rises. um but obviously a lot of that is kind of added by editors and or even sometimes in sort of you know post-production to what extent do you build that into the music by default and to what extent how do you tread that line of knowing okay how how far do we go down this how true are we to just creating a beautiful piece of music and then how much of the sort of infinite production bells and whistles are you sort of imposing on that track and how much Mm. are you kind of leaving to people's imaginations
1: Mm. great question um As a rule when we deliver a track we want it to sound like a finished trailer so as much of the sound design hits, rises, um, all that stuff is already in there. What tends to happen is that often it'll stay in um, and it won't get touched um, but equally often it'll all get stripped out and they'll put their own sound design in. Horror in particular, I mean, you can put, you know, all the jump scares and the big sort of swipes and slams and so on in all over the place, but they're never going to land exactly where the editor wants them to. So a lot of that stuff is going to get replaced. They may end up just using the bed of your track and then adding all the sound design themselves. And those guys are just, you know, wizards with sound design there. I mean, it's a real art form. So, yeah, it, 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 it depends. But ideally... Um, we want the track to sound like it will sound in the trailer. And that means that if it's a big track, it's going to have sort of very hefty, epic, sort of giant drums of war and so on. If it's something more intimate, we have to be more sensitive. It still needs accents and it still needs markers for editors to work around but they have to be much more sympathetic to the to the style of the queue and the arrangement so um yeah a lot of the sound design is is in there when we deliver stuff but we all every track we deliver we provide stems for so and i know you know as soon as an editor starts cutting with something seriously the first thing they do is they they drag all the stems into their session and they start muting stems um they start bringing their own sound design in uh and you know they will create something that's you know totally fresh
0: and just Further to that as well, because I think quite often the end product that we see, the trailer that we see, is often that the original piece of music. I mean, sometimes with the several pieces of music. But let's say, for example, for argument's sake, that the trailer is using one particular piece of music. Quite often, that piece of music has been sort of cut up into a completely different sort of form, and it is all over the place. With, and I think I know the answer to this, but I think for the sake of anybody listening, with the tracks of evolving sound are you trying to sort of second guess that almost slightly sort of erratic crazy trail nature or is your commitment to the piece of music and, and ensuring that you've you have a piece of music which takes people on a journey and that can provide a narrative mm. uh
1: again great question um i think uh, my philosophy is that Making assumptions about where there might be a dramatic shift in mood or tone is really dangerous. So it's much, much better to have something that feels cohesive um, and is consistent and has an identity, has a character than to think, well, what if the trailer editor, what if the trailer suddenly goes from comedic to, you know, horrific at this point? Let's change everything. You know, we'd just be second-guessing something that we know nothing about. So uh, it's much more likely in that scenario. We do sometimes, you know, we do get searches where somebody says, it needs to start tense, but by the end it needs to be really hopeful. Um, that's That's a slightly more organic sort of evolution, Um, And there are tracks that sometimes they do evolve and the mood does change, but it tends to be more subtle, more gradual. And, and, you know, if if something, if there's a real turning point, chances are the editor is going to need multiple cues to satisfy that and, and get exactly the right feel at exactly the right time. Or he's going to have to come back or go back to whoever's provided the music and say, can we customize this? Can we make this happy section scary or sad or more dramatic or more action-packed or whatever it is.
0: Interesting. And one thing I kind of wanted to pick up on as well, because I generally think of, um, I think production, well, I think commercial music, probably production music and sort of trailer music, I often sort of think of it as a three-act structure. But I was interested on the Evolving Sound website. We're talking, uh, Jules is obsessed with a four-act structure. <laughs> um, I mean, I think for anyone who doesn't sort of... I, Feel free. Well, yeah, just feel free to elaborate on that because I I find that very interesting.
1: Um, yeah, I mean the, the theory is that, that, that you know all, all all stories, all trailers have a beginning, a middle, and an end basically, and that's your three acts. Um, in in terms of um, when we're putting tracks together, what I tend to find. Um, And it's not always the case. Sometimes it just needs one act. You know, there's lots of trailers that use one slow burn cue from beginning to end and it just builds gradually It gets more, it gets darker, it gets more intense, it gets more ominous, and that's all you need. By and large, people want to set the scene with an intro, they often want a break at the end of the intro. They want a midsection where they start perhaps introducing beginnings of a plot or some characters. They want a bit more dynamism. They want some movement. It needs to feel like something's happening. It needs to have evolved a bit. And then they need the big final scene with the fast cuts and the sort of the drama and the action and so on. The back end, as we call it. Um, The fourth act, um, as far as I'm concerned, is I find you often need some relief after the midsection before the back end so what we like to try and do and it's not sometimes it's used sometimes it isn't used is we provide and try and provide an interlude where you get to the end of the mid section which is kind of built and built and built and but before you just go straight to the back end you might want to stop things down you might need space for a couple of lines of dialogue you might need a montage of something you might need to reflect on something that's appeared earlier in the story. and it just gives, you know, at the end of the day, we're trying to give trailer editors the tools they need to do an amazing job. So if they don't use it, then everything's editable. Uh, but it's there if they do need it. And then actually, we usually have a fifth act as well, because we usually need an outro. Usually you want a bit of music or sound design, some accents or markers to sit under title cards at the end as well. So there's a there's a short look there's no hard and fast rules. some one act tra- trailer tracks are just amazing sometimes you need three sometimes four sometimes five sometimes some people do two or three sort of broken up mid-sections and that works great you know but it's nice to have a framework it's nice to have a you know a, a, a sort of benchmark if you like
0: yeah and I suppose that goes back to what you were saying as well about you know if you try to second guess every single eventuality for every single trailer then it's you're on a hiding to nothing there's certain pieces of music will work for certain trailer types, others for not so much. Um
1: yeah, and I think it's 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 unusual um for I mean it does happen, happens all the time, but it's not it's not terribly common that one track gets used all the way through a trailer. So more often than not when we get a quote request, twenty, thirty, thirty five seconds of music, which means it's a midsection or it's a back end or it's an intro or they've used a bit here and then they've used another bit later. So, you know, that's just the nature of the beast. These these things get cut up and used in all sorts of fascinating, weird, creative ways. Uh, and you just want to be providing them with the raw material to just, you know, do something awesome.
0: Yeah. yeah. And as an editor, you know, as you say, you're providing the editor with a toolkit. And it's, it's probably quite rare that an editor's cursing you because you've, you've provided too much great material. Um, exactly.
1: So. Exactly. And the problem, obviously, is that from a, a listener's perspective, if you're trying to create something that is purely for, you know, enjoyment's sake, it might not always flow as naturally as you'd want it to. But, you know, you just have to accept that compromise because at the end of the day, you know, we're providing a service. And much as I love our music being on Spotify and people appreciating it, uh, you know, uh, the people who pay the bills are the, are the guys who are actually cutting trailers and promos with it.
0: Absolutely. And it's it's almost like as a composer, if, you know, you almost leave your artist hat at the door because you are, as you, you've touched on earlier on, you are you are servicing in the service of somebody else's vision in service of something else and, and you um, remembering that is um is definitely uh, advantageous
1: yeah i mean it doesn't it doesn't mean it's it's not artistically um satisfying or stimulating it's still great fun it just you know it does apply some additional if you want to look at them as constraints they're not really constraints they're just challenges you know you have to there it's an it's just an additional set of targets that you have to hit when you deliver a piece of music that it's got to work in a certain context it can't just be what happens to sort of spew out of your creative brain when you sit down in front of your door you have to be mindful of how it's most likely to be used um at the same time that can sometimes make things easier you know it gives you a framework it gives you a starting point um so you know it it cuts both ways getting a taste
0: <laughs> What's clear, increasingly clear, with all the conversations I have with with various people, is that we are all heavily influenced by arts that we are exposed to um, throughout our lives. I think there seems to be a more formative period, sort of like teens into twenties, um, and that kind of informs us as sort of creatives. And whilst I appreciate, you know, on these albums you're not not writing anymore, I imagine those influences are there in terms of how you're hearing things and, and notes you're giving. Can you sort of looking back over over time are there certain and this could be sort of film scores but it could equally just be sort of albums or particular tracks that have have really resonated with you and you feel have sort of shaped who you are uh, creatively today
1: golly that's one i definitely haven't prepared for um (laughs) yeah well as as i mentioned earlier so i i um i had a, a, a a grandmother who was an opera singer so i listened to a lot of classical music when i was younger but you know Basically pretended to hate it. Um, also listened to a lot of jazz, which I still love, and I still love a lot of classical music. Uh, Rimsky Korsakov Scheherazade was probably my favourite sort of classical work um as a young man. Um, it has a violin sort of motif that you just never forget. Um, and then yeah, I mean I I went through Scar. I was a mod. I would played in a heavy metal band, played keyboards for a while. I got really into funk in my sort of six, seven, late teens. Um, was in funk bands for probably four or five years. They, you know, I loved soul. Yeah, I, I can't really nail it down to any one specific thing. I mean, I've, I listen to film scores. I listen. I watch a lot of trailers and I still, you know, obviously love some of the classic trailers the alien the first alien trailer which is just a sort of brooding ominous building sound bed where the cuts just get gradually faster and faster and i just think it's absolutely genius um i love the way people are starting to use diegetic sound in in trailers you know real sound effects trailers like um what's that ben affleck film the accountant um, where it starts and you're sitting in a car and you hear the sound of the windscreen wipers and then the windscreen wiper sound sort of morphs into a sound design, sort of rhythmic bed, and then that eventually morphs into a radio head track. You know, things like that I just think are, are very clever. Um, dance music obviously was, was, you know, really, really big for me in my 20s. Um, so, yeah, I think I pretty much run the gamut, to be honest. Everything. I don't think, yeah, pretty much.
0: Um, are there any, <laughs> any particular dance artists that you kind of aspired to emulate when you were on that scene
1: God, i love i love bt um british telecom <laughs> <laughs> brian trasno um who's a progressive sort of dance artist who also then went into film scoring i think he scored oh, one of those very early i don't think it was the first fast and furious but it was one of those kind of street racing movies um he's super super talented Um, The thing about dance was it wasn't so much about specific artists. It was like tracks. It was very rare for... It was about labels Mm. um, at the time. So there were, you know, new York labels like Strictly Rhythm, for example, that you got into and Nervous Records. Um, Masters at Work I absolutely worshipped, who kind of blended house and soul, basically, into dance music. Um, Yeah, and then... Golly, who's the... um, I've just drawn a blank. Some of the great drum and bass artists like The Upbeats, who we actually did a collaboration with um, on an album, our first Icon series. In fact, it was a track that just got used on the Doctor Strange trailer. Oh, yes, So We we collaborated with The Upbeats, who are drum and bass guys from New Zealand. And um, my son is a massive drum and bass head, um, and he got me into drum and bass. So we we wrote them in, and that was just a fantastic collaboration. They gave us lots and lots of bundles of amazing sound design and musical ideas, but from completely outside the trailer universe, very, very sort of EDM-orientated. And um, and that's kind of what you have to do with trailer music. you constantly got to be looking for something new and different because everybody's using the same sample libraries. It's very hard to come up with, you know, original direction creative briefs um so yeah so i love guys like that i love anybody who's doing something that just feels you know fresh and and a bit different and i'm you know still obsessive about production constantly trying to find ways to get funky new edm flavored production devices into trailer tracks stutters and glitches and all that kind of stuff Um, So, yeah. Amazing. Sorry, I haven't answered your question. No, no, you
0: have. That's great. (laughs) I mean, what about the kind of, because obviously growing up in the the Northwest, um, because Manchester's obviously had a a pretty um, influential music scene um, over the years. Is there any particular artists from the sort of Manchester music scene that you can cite as been inspirational?
1: The weird thing, I wasn't a huge sort of Manchester (laughs) fan. Um, I mean, I like the Stone Roses and the Happy Mondays and those guys. But, you know, I'd be lying if I said I was down the Hacienda every weekend. (laughs) Um, I I don't know what I was doing. I was probably, you know, playing piano and being a nerd at
0: home. (laughs) What about metal? You mentioned metal with any particular sort of metal bands that you were sort of...
1: Oh, God, I loved Rush. Um, Absolutely loved Rush and big Iron Maiden fan. It was that phase of your life when you start to appreciate real musicianship. And, you know, if you're into commercial music, then you had you had to basically get into rock because that's where all the great musicians yeah. were peddling their wares. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I tried to learn guitar at the time. I was terrible at it. So, but, you know, you, 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 you get into those guys and you, you just watch the, the artistry. Um, and the skill set that they have. Mm. um Whether you like the music or not, you have to admire how good they
0: are. Yeah, yeah. And those those big riffs. You know, I sort of think back, like people like um, Enter Sandman by Metallica. Those, this, they just do something. Guns and Roses as well were a big influence for me. And yeah. those huge yeah. riffs, and you just you sort of go, wow, it's on a kind of a different level. Um, yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. yeah no rush was probably my favorite for a long time they did an album called moving pictures which i just absolutely adored mm,
0: amazing
1: i call it neil peart who died last year the rush drummer who was just an absolutely probably one of the best drummers of all time mm.
0: yeah it's weirdly with drummers one of the things that kind of i think this probably speaks to because I, I i'm a huge funk fan still um, i sort of right um to this day saxophone was my first instrument so i i always used to just put, a, put on uh, funk tracks and jam to them, and I loved it. And similarly with drums, but with drum, something about a drum solo,
1: um,
0: always well, any soloing, but particularly drum solos for some reason, when somebody lets rip on a drum kit, it just uh, it's goosebumps. crazy. It's
1: cr- I remember seeing Buddy Rich, I think yes. it was, he was a jazz drummer live, mm. and he he did a drum, so it went on for about 12 minutes, and it was just absolutely incredible. Mm. And I. As I said, I I loved 70s funk, you know, Commodores and um, Funkadelic and George Clinton, those guys. There's just something it was almost more about the spaces yeah. than the actual music. Yeah. You know, the timing, just the feel the, the syncopation, mm. it's a shame. We can't, we can't do funky trailer tracks. They just don't. <laughs> <unfortunately>. <laughs> Yet uh, the,
0: yeah. that, that weird yeah. crossover moment may come when you least expect it.
1: If I crack it, I'll, I'll let you know. I just can't see it working somehow. Um,
0: mm-hmm. Well, Jules, I'm uh, conscious of time. Um, I'm very, very grateful for, uh, for you taking the time to chat. That's great. Um, finish up i've got a couple of sort of quick fire questions for you mm. um firstly well the first one is usually what's your favorite biscuit but um I've jaffa cake that. although technically a cake but i think
1: figure all if i can't get jaffa cakes figural, figural yeah, yeah. Are they, are they, they are a biscuit i aren't think they?
0: so yeah um second question is if you could go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice what would it be
1: oh god just learn music just yeah um Acquire skills as quickly as possible and then probably specialize. Decide what it is that you really love and just go for it. Um, yeah, I'm, I've been very lucky. I have a son who's um, who's currently com- a composer. He's just graduating from, from Berkeley. So I've been able to vicariously, you know, <laughs> see him do all the things that I wish I'd been able to do. And there are such amazing facilities and resources out there now for young composers um that there weren't really when we, certainly when i was growing up you either studied music at university or conservatoire or you know you did something else basically and that you know that that's not the case anymore if you want to be a producer if you want to study you know electronics and music or coding or whatever it is um you know there's a way to study it and i do think it it if you can acquire those skills at an early age, it's such a competitive marketplace out there. You know, it definitely helps. And I, I had none of that. You know, if you don't have those skills, it's gonna be it's gonna be tough.
0: Mm. Yep, definitely. Um, but th- you know, that said, I yeah, quite surprised actually by the number of sort of um, guests I've had on the show who are composers and producers and have had no. Um, myself included I've had no sort of like formalised education in it although I did learn saxophone and instruments and that knowledge of music has definitely without doubt been sort of you know crucial a crucial part of of my journey yeah
1: look I, I'm, it's never going to make up for pure passion and commitment and, and determination um, but it's certainly really useful to have
0: um, what scares Jules Bromley
1: oh my god uh, what scares me um, this question yeah <laughs> um when you're running a business and we're expanding at the moment so we're just taking on a new creative production manager a new administrative assistant we've moved to new offices um you do have to be mindful of whether you're going to be able to pay the bills that's the thing that scares me um you know whilst you're small and starting out it's all fun and exciting and it's great and i you know i i still feel equally passionate about trailer music and and the whole trailer industry but yeah, there is a there's a reality when you're running a business uh, in a in a, a scary, volatile world as we we've seen over the last couple of years. Things can happen uh, from one day to the next, and cinemas just shutting down was pretty terrifying. Um, wondering if they're ever going to be theatrical trailers again, or you know if it was all going to be streaming only. Um, so yeah, I, you know, I I worry. I do worry about just making sure that. We can pay our composers or I mean, we're all going to be able to pay our composers, but pay our staff, make sure we're doing the best by them, make sure we're, we're securing placements for people who trust us with their content. You know, that that is a big responsibility because I know what it's like as a composer. You hand you hand over something to uh, to a label or a production music library and, you know, you you put all your faith in them that they're going to help you earn some money out of it. And it's not easy earning a living as a composer at the moment. So, yeah, those are the things that keep me awake at night sometimes.
0: And finally, what's uh, a little-known fact about George Bobby? Little-known fact?
1: Golly. Uh, I'm half Austrian.
0: Is 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 that interesting? I think so, yeah. Um, well, that that speaks to you know you're going to studying uh, modern languages and German. There's obviously the German connection there.
1: There you go. So my, my yeah, my um, opera singing grandmother was Austrian. Right.
0: Um, so um,
1: yeah, my my mum is Austrian. Amazing. There you go.
0: Perfect. Yeah. Uh, well, sorry, it's not more exciting. Oh, no, hey. That. That's <laughs> yeah. Oh, the other the other thing I keep sort of forgetting this in, in other episodes, but I, I'm I kind of obsessed with um, kind of weird and wonderful trivia about movies or bands or music. Um, To give you an example, one of the ones that's come up um, in previously was that the sound of the T-Rex, I think it was, in Jurassic Park. No, the velociraptors in Jurassic Park was sound design. It was basically the sound of tortoises mating. Um, And that was sort of turned into the... the... Do you have any kind of... It could be sound design, music, any sort of weird and wonderful trivia facts that you happen to know off the top of your head?
1: Uh, I have a friend who did all the sound design for what was that dinosaur documentary that the BBC did um, a few years ago? Um, And he, 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 and it was really good. And they did all the dinosaur sound. And the thing about doing dinosaur sound design, obviously is there's no dinosaurs. So so you can't just go into the wild and and record them. Um, Having said that, I can't remember, but he did tell me that, you know, he did some pretty crazy stuff to make, dinosaur sounds involving, you know, old bicycles and teapots and, you know, whatever he could, yeah, whatever he could sort of lay his hands on. Um, yeah, a lot of the stuff you hear in, in, in music is not what you think it is. That's, uh, we'd, I, I had a track in the other day and I was um, emailing the composer saying, yeah, that fantastic sort of high string signature that we've got in the back end, because um, he's a string player, we want to bring that out a little bit more. And he said, that's actually not strings. It's a trumpet that I blew the wrong way from the bell or something. So, um, yeah. Sorry, I don't have any, no, that's, I don't that, have any hey, fascinating that, trivia. That's all
0: good. I think that's that's like just sort of raised the question for me. Is like, um, I sort of, uh, Black Sunday by Cypress Hill, the album. Um, I, mm. I loved that album. And in a lot of the tracks, there's this sort of like... Mm. Which almost sounds like there's a kind of parakeet or something in the studio when they were recording, but I've always wanted to know what that is. So, you know, answers on a postcard, anybody who happens to know, that would literally <laughs> yeah. a life's quest to understand what that noise was. Oh, uh,
1: I, I can't help you there. Squeaky bicycle? Could be. Chain. Yeah, could be yeah. anything.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I seem, I seem to think that Chewbacca in Star Wars his the, the 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 sound of him sort of roaring was a cross between a grizzly bear and a walrus um this sort of you know pitch down a walrus and then put a grizzly bear on top of it and you kind of got this sort of sort of roar so um wow
1: i love all that stuff we do we we do some albums that are built around just field recorded sampling basically in fact that with one of our composers is in session today beating up a Steinway grand piano for a current album, not playing it, just basically making as many weird sounds with it as possible, which will hopefully be on our next album. Yeah. Watch out. Heliocentric.
0: Heliocentric. Um, and also yeah. just to mention as well, we've got this Fortis and Dominus are uh, two uh, albums. Are they out yet? Or are they coming out?
1: They're out. uh for the industry exclusively at the moment. So the way it tends to work is just because the studios have certain requirements in terms of exclusivity. Uh, everything goes to them first, um, to the trailer industry, so to speak, and gets released more widely about a year or so later. Just they they get first bite at the cherry.
0: And if anybody does want to, obviously there's the Evolving Sound website. Do you do you social Is there if people want to sort of... Uh... Um, not get in touch, yeah. but you know, follow you.
1: Yeah, yeah. i um, LinkedIn, Facebook, um, Instagram, Twitter. Just search Jules Bromley. Just search where, or well, search Evolving Sound. Evolving Sound. Evolving Sound is yeah, brilliant. Where it's at.
0: Jules, thank you so much for taking the time for, to chat. It's been it's been a, it's been a pleasure. Um, Thanks so much, Jim. Good luck with everything, and um, yeah, hopefully one day I might meet you face to face. Yeah, well, if you're ever up in the northwest,
1: drop in for a cup of tea. I
0: sometimes, I'm on my way to, to Leeds, I sometimes are going past, so maybe, maybe I will. All right, Jules, cheers,
1: <laughs> mate. Be lovely to see. Thanks, cheers. Jim
0: thank you very much for listening if you've enjoyed this episode and given that you've listened this far i feel you might have then i would be honored and incredibly grateful if you could take a moment to subscribe rate and review on your podcast platform of choice by subscribing you'll automatically be notified each time a new episode drops and by rating the show you tell the artificial intelligence that will soon be running the world that this podcast is worth listening to i certainly get a lot of insights and value from these conversations and i genuinely hope you do too if you'd like to get in touch with the show then you can email me podcast at larkmusic.com LARPmusic.com is my digital abode and the home of the podcast is larkmusic.com forward slash sync music matters podcast and sync music matters podcast is hyphenated thanks again for listening and until next time